Now, let's get right into our lesson study this evening. It's a very, very important lesson. Uh, it is actually foundational for many of the lessons that we're going to be studying in the future. So it is of critical importance that we understand the lesson tonight. And uh, you'll see why it is so important for us to understand this lesson. Now, let's just begin at the top and work through the lesson. It's a little bit shorter, at least it's three pages tonight. That doesn't mean that the time we're going to spend together is shorter, but the lesson is shorter. And let's just work through it. One year after Daniel arrived in Babylon with his three friends, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. The story of this dream is found in Daniel chapter 2. Let's study this chapter together. And incidentally, something that's not in the lesson is the fact that uh, the date for this chapter is 604 B.C. In other words, the events in this chapter are taking place in the year 604 before Christ. That's an important date because uh, we're going to find an amazing outline of history that is provided in this prophecy. Uh, there's no doubt whatsoever that the Bible is inspired as we look at this prophecy that was given over 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, let's go to section number one where we're dealing with the play and counterplay of history. At the beginning of human history, God gave Adam and Eve what? Dominion over the earth. Uh, what does this mean, dominion? It means rulership. In other words, Adam and Eve were, were placed on this earth as rulers of this world. This was their um, kingdom, if we can use the word. It was the kingdom that belonged to Adam and Eve. Now, question number two makes it very clear that when Adam and Eve sinned, this dominion was taken over by who? Satan. The dominion was taken over by Satan. It was stolen by Satan. We need to understand that uh, it was not Satan's rightful um, dominion. In other words, it wasn't his. God gave it to Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve lost it to Satan. Satan stole it, in other words. And we have several indications in the Bible that Satan took over the dominion of this world. Of course, we have the text that's in the lesson where uh, the devil on the Mount of Temptation shows Jesus all of the kingdoms. Notice the expression, the kingdoms of the world. And he says to Jesus, uh, you see all of these kingdoms out there? He says, I'll give you all of these kingdoms if you only bow down and worship me because these kingdoms have been delivered to me. That's the reason why in the Old Testament we have, for example, the story of Job. Have you ever read the story of Job? There's this meeting that takes place in heaven, and the sons of God come to this heavenly, heavenly meeting. And among those sons of God that come to this meeting is whom? It's Satan. Now the question is, what is Satan doing in that heavenly meeting? Well, the fact is that who should have been at that meeting? Adam should have been at that meeting representing planet Earth. But he had given up the rulership, and so Satan went. And that's the reason why Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. The prince of this world. Number three. Jesus came to Earth to recover the dominion which Adam and Eve lost. When he died on the cross, the prince of this world was what? Was cast out. Now, in uh, our session on 
Um, actually, tomorrow night, we're going to deal with the second part of Daniel chapter 2. And then on Saturday night, we're going to deal with Revelation 12. And we'll talk a little bit more about what happened at the cross of Calvary when Jesus died. The devil was cast out of heaven as the representative of this world when Jesus died on the cross. I'm not going to amplify that much more now, uh, but uh, you need to remember, you need to keep that in the corner of your mind. Now, number four, what was King Nebuchadnezzar thinking about when he went to bed one night? Somebody want to tell me what he was thinking about? Louis? What should come to pass after this? So he was thinking about the future of his what? of his kingdom. He was wondering what was going to happen in the future. Now, he was thinking this, right? This is an important detail. He was thinking this when he was in bed. It says, thoughts came to your mind. In other words, he didn't utter, utter these thoughts. He just thought them. This is a very important detail we're going to find. And then something really strange happens. And I don't know whether you've stopped to ask yourself the question, why something like this would happen. Now, who gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream? God. You know, it wasn't a dream, it wasn't a dream that he had because he ate too much pizza the night before. This was a prophetic dream given by God. But then when Nebuchadnezzar wakes up, what happened? He couldn't remember the dream. Have you ever asked your quest, yourself the question, why would God give the king a dream? And then when Nebuchadnezzar woke up, God would hide the dream from his memory? Now, Nebuchadnezzar knew he had, dream, had dreamed, right? He knew that. Uh, have you ever had a dream where when you wake up, you know that you've dreamed, but uh, you can't remember what it was, and you just say, oh, I wish I could remember. You know, I know I was dreaming, but what was I dreaming about? I've had that experience. I know you've had that experience too. And that's what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Only our dreams are not prophetic dreams. The dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was a prophetic dream given by God. But now when he wakes up, basically God says to Nebuchadnezzar, forget your dream. And he hides the dream from his mind. Why would God do this? Everything that God does has a purpose. And we're going to see in a few moments what the purpose was. Who did Nebuchadnezzar call when he forgot his dream? He called the astrologers. Who else? The magicians, the soothsayers, and the Chaldeans. Today we call them the psychics, the clairvoyants, the channelers, and the astrologers. Did God know that Nebuchadnezzar was going to call these uh, individuals when Nebuchadnezzar forgot the dream? Yes. Sure. The real reason why God led Nebuchadnezzar to forget the dream is because he wanted to unmask improper methods of discovering the future. Are you with me? Because these men came the Bible says, and they were not able to tell the king his dream. Now, let me ask you, can Satan read people's thoughts? How do we know that? Do you suppose the devil was dying to tell his, uh, his psychics and his astrologers what the dream was? 
Oh, yes, because if he would have been able to tell them what it was, then people would have believed that they were what? That they were able to uh, read the mind and decipher the future. But the fact that they were not able to know the dream indicates that they could not read the mind the way that God reads the mind. In other words, the purpose was, God, was that God wanted to unmask, he wanted to show the falsity of all of these methods for knowing what will take place in the future. Now notice question number six. What nine pagan practices did God forbid Israel to participate in? Somebody want to mention some of these? Sure. Number five. Yes. So the answer was to unmask the falsity of those methods? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Did you get it right? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's all right. Uh, that's why we have class, uh, to clarify some points. Okay, what were some of the methods that God forbade Israel to participate in? Okay, witchcraft. What else? Oh, burning your children in the fire. What else? Oh, wizardry. Sorcery. What else? Necromancy. You know what necromancy means? In Greek, the word necros means dead. Necromancy means the attempt to communicate with the dead. Today, we would call this practice channeling. Now, allow me to dwell a little bit of time on this question, which is of critical importance. Basically, all of these occultic practices, because all of these practices, the nine that are mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18, are occultic practices, practices of the occult. And every single one of them is based on a false concept which is known as the idea of the immortality of the soul. The immortality of the soul. The Bible does not teach the immortality of the soul. The Bible teaches that when a person dies, the totality of the human being dies until the moment of the resurrection. In other words, man's hope of life is found in the resurrection by the power of God. It's not found within man. Now, let's go back to Genesis, and I want to go through this a little bit so that you can understand what I'm saying. Uh, let me ask you, who is the only person in the universe who is omnipotent, who can do all things? Who is the only being in the universe who knows all things? Who is the only person in the universe who is everywhere simultaneously? God. Who would be the only being in the world who is immortal and cannot die? God. You see, the question is, why would you say that God, God can do all, is the only one who can do all things, the only one who can know all things, the only one who can be everywhere present, but immortality, that's not only his, that's everybody else's too. You see, these are called non-communicable attributes of God. In other words, they belong inherently to God. They do not belong to man or to human beings. Now, notice Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. I'm going to go through this quickly because we need to understand what these uh, magicians and astrologers and sorcerers uh, taught in Babylon. Genesis chapter 2, 
And we've read this before. Let's read it again. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you know, literally it says in Hebrew, you will die by death. As if there's any other way of dying. But it just wants to underline the fact that whoever sins will what? Will die for sure without any doubt. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, let's notice what God said in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19. God says to Adam, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Was the death sentence pronounced upon Adam and Eve? Yes. Now go with me to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9. There was another tree in the Garden of Eden, according to Genesis. Not only the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there was another tree. Notice verse 9 says, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of what? The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What tree was in the midst of the garden besides the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The tree of life. What was the tree of life for? What was the purpose of the tree of life? Did Adam and Eve have to eat, continue eating from that tree to continue living? Of course. And in a moment I'm going to prove it from Scripture that they had to eat from the tree of life to live. In other words, where was their source of life? Was it inside them or was it outside? It was outside. It was in a tree. It wasn't, wasn't in them. It was outside of them. And God said, as long as you don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you can eat of the tree of life, but if you tree, eat of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to what? You're going to die. Why would man die if he, if he ate from the tree of, uh, of knowledge of good and evil? Because he could no longer eat from what? From the tree of life. Let's read it in Genesis 3, verse 22. Genesis 3 and verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and what? And live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now let me ask you this. If Adam and Eve were already immortal, what good would it have been to forbid them from eating from the tree? Are you understanding my question? Yes? If Adam and Eve were already immortal, notice, if Adam and Eve could not die, what good would it have been for God to say, let's not have them eat from the tree of life so that they won't live forever, if they already had immortal life and they wouldn't live forever anyway? Are you understanding what I'm saying? Furthermore, listen to what I'm going to say, furthermore, if Adam and Eve were immortal, 
then why did Jesus come to come to give them immortality by dying on the cross? Are you following me or not? Yes. Saying that man by nature is immortal makes it unnecessary for Christ to come and give us immortality. Because why would he give us something that we already possess? Are you following me or not? So in other words, the only source of life for man was in the tree. He had to continue eating from what? From the tree of life in order to live. In other words, uh, he, it wasn't only eating once and being immortal forever. He had to continue eating. And you say, well, how do we know that? Well, in a minute we're going to prove it from Scripture. But let me ask you this. How long did human beings live before the flood? The oldest was 969 years old. Why do you suppose they lived longer back then? <clears throat> well, the creation wasn't as degenerated, right? And uh, they had stronger bodies, didn't they? Because they were closer to creation. And, pardon me? Less pollution. But they had also partaken of what? Partaken of the tree of life. By the way, have you ever noticed in Genesis chapter 5, right after the creation story, every single one of the individuals that is mentioned in the genealogy, it says, and he died, with the exception of Enoch. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Who was the one that uh, tried to convince Adam and Eve that they, that they would be immortal if they ate from the tree? So the idea that man by nature is immortal is whose doctrine? It's Satan's doctrine. Because Satan said to Eve, you will what? You will not surely die if you eat from the tree. So God says you will die. The serpent says you will not surely die. Now, go with me to Isaiah 66. How about when we get to heaven? When we live on the new earth that God has promised. Then we're going to have immortal life that will be ours. And not, nobody can take it away from us, right? It'll be innate. Our own. Nice try. We're going to have to do what Adam and Eve had to, would have had to do if they'd been in the garden, in a perfect garden. Notice Isaiah 66. We'll come back to this a little bit later on in the seminar. It says in verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your seed remain, name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, in the Old Testament, the expression new moon, uh, really, it would be better translated month, because what marks the beginning of the month is the new moon, at least in biblical times. And the version in Spanish says de mes en mes. Instead of from one moon, new moon to another, it says from month to month. And so it says from month to month and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Now the question is, uh, why are we going to go to worship before the Lord from month to month? Well, let's go to Revelation 22. You gave the right answer. 
But let the Bible corroborate the answer that was given. Revelation 22 and verses 1 and 2. And by the way, let's read uh, chapter 21 so that you can see that this is speaking about the same thing as in Isaiah. Chapter 21 and verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new, new earth. Is that what we saw in Isaiah 66? Yes. And now chapter 22 and verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Was that tree of life in the Garden of Eden? Yes. yes. And now notice. Which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Why do you suppose it yields its fruit every month? Because Isaiah 66 says that when God makes a new heaven and a new earth, we will go from month to month to worship before the Lord, to eat from the tree. So let me ask you, even in the new earth, where will our source of life come from? It will not be in us, inherently belonging to us, that nobody can take it from us. Our life will still be contingent upon the life that God imparts. So where did this idea come from that you can channel the dead? You know, there's a lot of Hollywood movies that come out these days. Harry Potter. How many of you have been to... No, I better not ask. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings. City of Angels. Highway to Heaven. Etc., etc. The idea is that the basic idea is that people died, and when they died, they went to heaven, and then they came back to earth as angels to communicate with the living. That is exactly what God forbids in His Word. He says to Israel, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall not practice any of the abominations of these nations that you are going in to possess their land. Because I am holy, you shall be holy. The fact is that when people try to communicate with the dead, they're not communicating with the dead. Who are they communicating with? They're communicating with Satan and his angels who want people to think that the dead are not dead. And so all of these things were practiced by those individuals in Babylon. We know that they believed in the immortality of the soul. We know that they tried to read the future in the stars. See, they believed that the departed spirits of the dead would go and inhabit the stars. And then, by consulting the stars where these spirits dwelt, they could be able to tell human beings what was going to happen in the future. And believe me, there are a lot of people in the world today that believe the same thing. Christians. <coughs> you know, I know Christians that, uh, you know, who are Hispanics that would never miss uh, the prognostications of Walter Mercado. Some of you snicker because you know who I'm talking about. All the time you see people that are on television supposedly channeling the dead. You say, well, they, they, they say certain things that, that have happened to other people. They know things that nobody else knew. How do they know it? Because the devil knows it. And the devil can reveal it to their mind, can't he? Because the devil knows everything that's happened to everybody through his angels. 
So can he whisper in the channeler's ear? Of course he can. So the question is, where are we supposed to get our information? Where do we get it? If you want to know what's going to happen in the future, where do you find that out? Here. In God's Word. This is trustworthy. You can trust this. You can't trust feelings and impressions and emotions and voices and, and, and things like that. Now let's go to number seven. What did the king command should be done to the wise men when they were unable to tell the dream? Kill them. And who was among the wise men? Who do you suppose whispered in Nebuchadnezzar's ear, ear kill them? Remember we're reading behind the scenes of history? See, the devil says, oh, you unmasked my guys? Okay, I'll have your prophet killed. Are you following me? The devil knew that Daniel was among the wise men, so he says to Nebuchadnezzar, ah, oh, get rid of these charlatans, you know, and he really wants to get rid of Daniel. Now, number eight, why couldn't the wise men tell the king his dream? Why? Because God gave the dream, because God knew what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking, and Satan cannot read what? Satan cannot read the mind. Now, do you see what's going on here? God knows what the king is thinking. So he says, okay, king, here's a dream. Then when Nebuchadnezzar wakes up, God says, forget the dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar forgets the dream. God says, I know he's going to call these individuals to tell him what the dream was. And they're not going to be able to. That way people are going to know that these methods don't work. So when that happens, the devil says, okay, have all of the wise men killed. Because he knows that Daniel's going to be a problem later on. Because he'd seen what his, his faithfulness in chapter 1. He says, I've got to get rid of this guy. So he says, all, all of the wise men killed. But you know, the interesting thing is that by rounding up all of the wise men, that is the very act that leads Daniel to prominence in the kingdom. Now you see what's happening? Have kind of a tug of war here, don't you? God acts and then the devil acts. God acts and then the devil acts. And let me just give you an illustration so that you can understand what I'm saying. History is like a play and a counterplay. History is like a game of chess. How many of you have ever played chess? My, you smart people. I, I, know, I only know how to play games where you go forward. <laughs> One space at a time. I admire those who are able to play chess where they move in different directions, you know, the little pawns. I'd like you to imagine that history is like a chessboard. God is sitting on one side of the table and the devil is sitting on the other side. And the board is history and the little pawns are the events of history. So God, uh, God says to Satan, your move. So Satan causes an event in history. God says, okay, my turn now. And so then God plays. The devil says, wow, I wish I knew he was going to play that way. See, there's only one, one problem in the, in, in the game of history. And that is that even before the game started, God already knew all the moves that Satan was going to make. <laughs> How much of a possibility would there be that you could lose a game of chess if you already knew all the moves the other player was going to make? You could always counteract his moves, couldn't you? You see, God knows how the devil is going to move, but the devil has to guess how God is going to move. And when you guess, 
you're prone to make terrible mistakes. So history is a play and counterplay. Josh? Oh, you had a question back there. Can Yes, who? Oh, okay. Oh, I guess not. Raise your hand high and wave it so that I can see it. Okay. Uh, do you understand why this whole historical section is given of Daniel chapter 2 before we get to the image? Now, notice the dream. The dream is revealed. The wise men complained that only the gods could show the king his what? His dream because their dwelling was not with what? Flesh. I want you to notice the elements that we have in this verse. The gods could not tell the dream because their dwelling is not with flesh. Can you think of another verse of the Bible that uses those three same concepts? Dwell, flesh, uh, and what else? John 1.14. And God, of course. The Word, who is God, was what? Was made flesh and dwelt among us. The gods of the pagans were gods that concealed. The God of the Bible is the God who reveals his secrets to whom? To his servants, the prophets. And so what a contrast, you know, if you look at the pagan gods in antiquity, they were, they were adulterers and they were murderers and they were hateful. You know, they just enjoyed seeing human beings suffer. You look at the pagan gods, that's the way they were. And they loved to conceal what they were doing from human beings, just to watch them suffer. The, the God of the Bible is different. The God of the Bible is a God who makes himself flesh through Jesus and dwells among us so that he can communicate exactly what's going to happen. As it says in Amos 3 verse 7, God will do nothing if he does not reveal his secrets. To who? To his servants, the prophets. Number five. This is page two. Well, the bottom of page one, you know, his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Daniel did not employ forbidden methods to, methods to discover the future. Neither did he ask for money or reward. That's quite different from many so-called prophets today. Um... They're in it for profit. P-R-O-F-I-T. He did not consult the signs of the zodiac, even though, uh, you know, astrology began in ancient Babylon. This idea of 12 signs, 7 signs, you know, and 12 signs, and the idea of 360 degrees, we'll talk about this when we deal with Daniel chapter 3, 360 degrees of space, 360 days of time, all of that comes, that what is called the sexagesimal system, it comes from ancient Babylon. 60 minutes make an hour. Yes, 60 minutes make an hour, 60 seconds make a minute. Uh, the sexagesimal system comes from ancient Babylon. And it seeped in, in astrology and in the occult. We're not going to get into that a lot right now, but I want you to remember that when we study Daniel 3, we'll come back to it. He did not consult signs of the zodiac, a crystal ball, or a spirit guide. Instead, he what? Prayed. He prayed to the God of heaven. If you want to know what the future for the world is, 
and what the future of your life is, what do you do? You read the book. And you discover what God says will take place in the future. Number six, I want to dwell a little bit on this one. According to Daniel, the true God changes what? The times and the seasons. What else does he do? He removes and what? And raises up kings. Why did we have all that problem with the hanging chads in the last election? Well, they're just bad machines, right? No. Whoever is in is ruling at the moment is because God, in his infinite plan, allows that person to be there for some reason. And what else does God do? He gives what? Wisdom to the wise. Now, I need to put something here on the board. Three things that we just noticed in Daniel 2 verse 21. Number one, God changes what? He changes the times. Oh, by the way, can you think of another power in the book of Daniel who thinks he can change the times? Oh, the little horn of Daniel 7. Our next lesson deals with the little horn. Does God change the times? But the little horn thinks he can change the times. Thinks. So God changes the times. What is the second thing that he does? Let's just put here, he places kings and he removes kings. And number three, what does he do? He gives wisdom. Now this is Daniel 2 verse 21. Do you know that these three ideas are developed in reverse order in the rest of Daniel 2 and in Daniel 3? Let me show you how. What did God give Daniel so that he could interpret the dream? Wisdom. You can read it in Daniel 2 and verse 30. Also in the last verses of chapter 1. In Daniel 2, 37 and 38, notice Daniel, what does Daniel say to Nebuchadnezzar? Somebody want to read Daniel 2, verses 37 and 38? This is in Daniel 2, verse 30, the wisdom part. In Daniel 2, uh, verses 37 and 38, we have the second element. Why was Nebuchadnezzar king? Well, he had better armies, more powerful weapons. He was smarter. Uh -uh. Who wants to read that? Verses 37 and 38. Gene, please. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over all of them. Thou art the head of gold. Who placed Nebuchadnezzar on the throne? God. So that's the second element. God placed Nebuchadnezzar on the throne. Now, what about the changes, the times aspect? Well, let's take a look at that. When Nebuchadnezzar heard the dream, 
and what it meant. Was he happy? We're going to study the dream in a moment. The dream uh, describes human history, doesn't it? From the days of Nebuchadnezzar to the very end, to the setting up of Christ's kingdom. In other words, God says, after the head of gold, there's going to be another kingdom. And after that, there's going to be another kingdom. And after that, another kingdom. Then that one's going to be divided. And then there's going to be an everlasting kingdom, which God will set up and it will never be destroyed. After this, Nebuchadnezzar did not like God's prophetic scenario. Because Nebuchadnezzar thought that his kingdom was going to what? Was going to last forever. How dare this God of Daniel say that after Babylon there was going to be another kingdom? And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do in Daniel chapter 3? He builds a statue like the one that he saw in his dream, but instead of making the head of gold, he makes it gold from head to foot. What, ne what was Nebuchadnezzar saying? My kingdom will last forever. He was saying the golden kingdom, none of this business about a breast and arms of silver and belly of bronze and legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. Come on! My kingdom is going to last what? Forever! And woe to he who says that it's not. Hmm. So what was Nebuchadnezzar trying to do? He was trying to change what? We're going to find in our study of the next lesson that the, that the expression, the times, refers to God's prophetic calendar, prophetic times. That's why the little horn governs time, times, and the dividing of time. Whenever in prophecy you find the word times, it refers to the, God's calendar of prophetic events, the order in which prophetic events will occur. That's why in Acts chapter 1, for example, when, they, when the uh, disciples asked Jesus, will you restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Jesus says, listen, it is not for you to know the times which the Father has in his own authority. In other words, the times are under God's control. When he will fulfill this prophetic event, that prophetic event, it's under his control. So whenever you find the word times, in a prophetic context, it means God's prophetic calendar of events. Now, who can change the times if he wants? God. But Nebuchadnezzar tried to change the times, didn't he? Was he successful? He was not successful. Must it mean then that the little horn of Daniel 7, which we're going to study uh, a little bit later on, actually in our next lesson, is it just possible that the little horn of Daniel 7, the Antichrist, uh, has attempted to change God's prophetic calendar? How, how prophecy will be fulfilled in history? We're going to find that that's true that the little horn has tried to change God's calendar of prophetic events. He switched the fulfillment of prophecy from one place to another so that people can't see prophecy fulfilling. Now, let's go to the next section, the dream and its meaning. In his dream, King Nebuchadnezzar saw an image composed of several different metals. Then as he watched, a stone struck the image on its feet. And the stone then grew and became a mountain which filled the whole earth. What is rep represented by each part of the image? Now you see here uh, Nebuchadnezzar's image. Um, there you have the fullness of the image. What was the head made out of? The head was made out of gold. The breast and arms were made of silver. The belly of bronze. The legs were of iron. The feet were composed of iron and clay. 
Now this is really, really a strange dream, isn't it? What does it all mean? Well, Daniel 2 itself explains it to us. So it's not really that complicated. Notice number one. Daniel told the king that the head of gold represented his kingdom. Actually, he says, you are what? The head of gold. But we know that a king and kingdom are what? Interchangeable because Daniel then says, after you shall arise another kingdom. Are you with me? You're the head of gold, and after you will arise another kingdom. Obviously, a king without a kingdom, <laughs> there's no such thing. Now, number two. The breast and arms of, of silver represent another kingdom, which arose after Babylon. Let me ask you, did it arise immediately after Babylon? Sure it did. Daniel 5 itself tells us so. You remember the story of Belshazzar? When he was celebrating this banquet? You can read the story in Daniel 5. By the way, what kingdom was the kingdom that came? Oh, Medo-Persia. What part of the image is Medo-Persia? The breast and arms of silver. See, Daniel itself tells us what the next kingdom is. Because Daniel 5, you find those words, mene mene tekel uparsin, which means your kingdom is divided or split, and it's given to the Medes and the Persians. See, the second kingdom, or the other kingdom that comes after Babylon is Medo-Persia. The book itself tells us that. Does Medo-Persia immediately succeed Babylon? Or is there a long gap in between? There's no gap. It's fulfilled in sequence, without gaps, without interruptions. Notice number three. The belly of bronze represents a what? A third kingdom. Do you think that third kingdom arises as soon as the second kingdom falls? Sure. And then the legs of iron represent a what? A fourth kingdom. Does that kingdom arise as soon as the third kingdom falls? Yes. In other words, I want you to notice here that there's no evidence in the Bible that there are any gaps between the kingdoms because each kingdom conquers the previous kingdom. By the way, where does Daniel 2 begin? With which kingdom? Babylon. Who lived in the days of Babylon? Daniel. So when does Daniel 2 start fulfilling? In the day of the prophet. When does Daniel 2 reach its conclusion? at Christ's everlasting kingdom. Did we talk about this method when we dealt with principles, the historical method? Prophecy begins, apocalyptic prophecies begin to fulfill on the day of the prophecy, and then you have, you have Babylon, and then after you have Medo-Persia, then afterwards you have Greece, then afterwards you have Rome. Let me ask you, when you interpret prophecy from this perspective, do you know at each moment where you are in the flow of history? The four metals of the image represent four successive world empires. By the way, this is not my invention. You can go to any world history book and it will tell you what I have here on this sheet. There were four world empires. Babylon, which governed from 605 to 539 BC. Remember that before Christ, numbers go down until you reach the, the year a zero, which there was really no year zero, but until you reach uh, the time when supposedly Christ was born, and then the numbers go up. And then Medo-Persia, 
governs from 539 to 331 BC. Greece from 331 to 168 BC. Rome from 168 BC to 476 AD. We'll deal more with this stage in our class uh, tomorrow night. Um, but for now, I just want you to have clear in mind the sequence of the nations. Is it clear in your mind? So how did Daniel know that there were going to be four world empires and he's saying this 70 years before Babylon fell. Huh. Lucky guess. Why did you have in history Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome? How did Daniel know hundreds of years before these kingdoms arose that they were going to arise in that order? <coughs> Unless God knows the end from the beginning and unless we can trust the Bible. Now, by the way, do you notice here that the metals decrease in value as you move down the image? You know, people who believe in biological evolution usually also believe in social evolution. Let me explain what I mean. See, if biological evolution is true and everything is evol evolving to better and better that must mean that the nations which are formed by those people who are evolving to better and better those nations must also become what better and better but you look at the world today there's no such thing as evolution you have devolution <laughs> and this is indicated by the decreasing value of the metals of the image The morality of the nations gets worse and worse as you near the end of time. That's why the Apostle Paul says that in the latter days he gives this long list in, in Timothy about men will be lovers of themselves, boasters, violent, blasphemers. And he says in the latter days this is going to happen. There's no respect for God anymore. There's no respect for, for sacred holy things anymore. And all of this is predicted, that history was going to decay and tell folks, the only hope of this world is going to be Christ coming to set up his everlasting kingdom. That's the only hope. Because there's no hope in human beings, sinful human beings. If God left this earth to itself, eventually it would extinguish itself. Now, let's talk about the feet of iron and clay. This is a particularly exciting uh, portion of this uh, dream. The ten toes represent the fact that the fourth kingdom would be divided into ten kingdoms. How many toes do two normal feet have? Because, you know, I've asked before, I said, how many toes do two feet have? Well, it all depends if somebody in an accident lost one or something. Somebody always comes up with that. And so, and so from, from a while back on, I decided that I would say, how many toes do two normal feet have? They have ten toes. In other words, the fourth kingdom was going to be what? Divided. What is the fourth kingdom? Rome. Rome. Represent the Roman Empire. Therefore, let me ask you, if there's still iron in the feet, must Rome continue in the feet? Yes. But in a divided state. Are you with me? 
In other words, Rome would continue to exist, but it would be divided into ten kingdoms. Rome, political Rome would continue, but it would be divided into ten kingdoms. And this is exactly what happened. Uh, the barbarians. Anybody ever heard of the barbarians? What kingdom did the barbarians invade? They invaded Rome from, from the northern, uttermost northern sector of the empire. They came down in hordes, different tribes, and they started carving out what had previously been the Roman Empire. And you can see here uh, these kingdoms, ten of them that were established ultimately. You have the Anglo-Saxons. What country in the world uh, today uh, comes from the Anglo-Saxons? England or Great Britain. How about the Suevi? It's Portugal. How about the Visigoths? Spain. How about the Franks? France. How about the Alemanni? Oh, for, and for those who know Spanish, that's a cinch. Right, Judy? And so basically what happened is what had been a united empire with one culture and one language and one political system now was carved up into different kingdoms, different cultures, different languages. And Europe today is the fruit of that division. You see, in Europe, in, in Roman times, Latin was spoken all over the empire. But now you have French, and you have German, and you have Spanish, and you have uh, Portuguese, and you have all different types of languages in Europe. And all of these come directly from the division of the Roman Empire. In other words, the empire was divided into ten kingdoms. How did Daniel know this 800 years before it happened, 900 years before it happened? It's amazing. I mean, you can't guess something like this. Daniel must have had supernatural information imparted by God about what was going to happen. And so the kingdom was divided. But now I want you to notice something. Let's go to question number eight. By the way, are we dealing with symbols here? Are these nations an image? Literally. No. Is Babylon literally ahead of gold? Of course not. Are these ten kingdoms literally ten horns? Or ten toes? No. We're dealing with what? Symbols that represent something. Now in the feet there is iron, which means that Rome continues in the feet of the image in a divided state. And that's where we have Europe. The divisions of Europe today. <laughs> but I want you to notice, and this will become clearer in our lesson tomorrow night, that to the iron of the feet and the ten divisions is added another strange element. What is added to the iron? Clay. Now, notice number eight. The iron in the feet was mingled with 
Don't miss that. That's important. That's the reason why I put the blank, that blank there, because I wanted you to put potter's. Potter's clay. Let me ask you, what does a potter do? A potter makes pots. Good. Perfect grade for you. A potter forms clay that is, that is soft with his hands. He forms it with his hands. Now, let me ask you something. Is iron good? Is it, is it important? Is it useful? Sure. Is potter's clay very useful and nice? Does it serve a good purpose? Sure. Where is the problem? The problem is when you take two things which are good in themselves separate and you mix them. Are you with me? It's like mixing oil and water. They don't blend, they don't mix, they don't go together. They're fine separate, they're to remain separate, but they're not to be joined together. Now the question is, what does the clay represented, represent, which was added to the ten divisions of Rome? See, these ten divisions were not only a political power, they were also what? They were mixed or blended with a religious power. Let's take a look at this. Go with me to Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah chapter 18. I don't want you to miss this point. Remember, we're dealing with symbols. When we have a symbol, what do we do to understand what the symbol means? Do you remember our principle? What do we, where do we find the meaning of a symbol? We allow the Bible in other passages to explain the symbol. Now, notice Jeremiah 18 verses 1 to 6. It says here, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of what? Of clay. Is this potter's clay? Obviously, because the potter is using clay. This is potter's clay. And so the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. By the way, the marring of the... We're going to find in a minute that this uh, vessel that the potter made represents what? Israel. Is Israel God's Old Testament church? Is it God's Old Testament people? Israel? Yes. Now the shattering of the vessel here represents the Babylonian captivity. You remember that Israel was taken captive to Babylon? That's why... Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there. See, we're studying about that tonight when Daniel arrived. One year afterwards, uh, the king has this dream. That was the captivity. Israel was taken captive to Babylon. In other words, as God's chosen people, the vessel was shattered. But what did God do after the 70 years of captivity? He restored Israel to their land. Notice what it continues saying. Verse 4, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. And now comes the explanation. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, says the Lord, 
Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. What is represented by the potter's clay? Israel, which is God's Old Testament church. Are you with me? Now go with me to Genesis 2 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. How about the New Testament church? Could you say that the New Testament church was formed by Christ? Was it formed out of uh, clay? Sure. Let's, let's notice Genesis 2 verse 7. And the Lord God, what's the next word? Formed. formed. That's the same Hebrew word that you find for the vessel's work in Jeremiah 18. The Hebrew word yatsar. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. How many of you have ever tried to form something from dust? <laughs> Hold your finger there. Go with me to, uh, go to, to uh, Isaiah 64 verse 8. We're going to find that God used wet dust. <laughs> what do we call wet dust? I'm looking for a different word. That's, that's a... Clay, thank you. Thank you. Because God formed. In other words, God is the what? He formed man. God is the potter. Notice Isaiah 64 and verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. And you are potter. And all we are the work of your hand. So how did God form man? He did it like, like, like whom? He did the work like a potter. He formed the body of man as a potter, it says here. Out of potter's what? Clay. And then what did he do according to Genesis 2 and verse 7? Into that body that he formed as a potter of clay, he what? He breathed into his nostrils the spirit of life. And that body became what? A living body. Or a living person, living soul, as the Bible says. Now you say, what does this have to do with, the, with potter's clay? Well, you see, what, what applies to your physical body, physically, applies to the church spiritually. Who formed the church? Who formed the church? Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Who formed the church? Jesus did. And what does the Apostle Paul call the church? Oh, thank you very much. The church is called the body of Christ. Formed by Christ and it has many what? Many members. But let me ask you, what was needed in that body of Christ so that it could go out and conquer the world and function? What happened on the day of Pentecost to that body? The Holy Spirit was poured out and it came into the body. And then the church went out conquering and to conquer as the living church. Are you with me? 
So what does the potter's clay represent? In the Old Testament, it represents the work of God informing his Old Testament church, Israel. In the New Testament, it represents the work of Jesus forming his body, which is the church. In other words, the clay in the feet represents what? The church. Did you, are you understanding what I'm saying? Are you following me? Raise your hand if you understand what I'm saying. So in other words, what this is saying is that in the feet of the image, Rome would continue, the political power of Rome would continue, the nation, the kingdom would be divided into ten political kingdoms, but blended with these political systems would be a what? A religious system. A union of church and state, if you please. Is that true of Europe? During the Middle Ages? You tell me. Am I rewriting history here? I'm not. Have any of you ever heard of the Inquisition? What was the Inquisition? The Inquisition, you know, they would have uh, priests that would examine an individual that was accused of heresy. And if it was found that that individual believed differently than what the church believed, that person was handed over to whom? To the secular power to be exterminated. Was that a union of church and state? Yes, absolutely. And it lasted, we're going to find in our lesson tomorrow, it lasted for over a thousand years. Folks, I'm not rewriting history. This is the truth. You can read it in any history book. That you had an amalgamation of church and state. And by the way, this is going to happen in the future again. Because Revelation 17, a prophecy that we're going to study, speaks about a harlot. What does a harlot represent? A woman in prophecy represents a church. But if this is a harlot church, a harlot woman, it must represent a fallen church. Are you following me? And it says in Revelation 17 that one of the great sins of this harlot woman is that she has committed fornication with the kings of the earth. You see, the church is to be married only to Jesus. The church is to get Jesus to do the work of persuading human beings to receive Jesus. Not by force, but by the preaching of the word. And always that you have a union of church and state, the end result is persecution. And if you wonder about that, I invite you to travel to Afghanistan before the United States went to war there. That was a church state. And how did the people live? They were miserable. Because when they didn't measure up to the religious views of the Taliban, they were what? Did you see that, that presentation behind the veil of this woman that went and had a camera under her veil? They would take women who, who just barely, you know, uncovered their faces, maybe even by accident, which is against 
their extreme view of religion, and the result was the death penalty. They were shot. This is always what happens when you join church and state. That's why Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Let me ask you, are the civil powers of the world good? Yes. Are you happy that we have the governments of the world? Yes. Is the church good? Yes. Where do you have the problem? The problem is when you blend the church and the state. You have terrible problems. It always ends up in persecution. Now let's go quickly to the last kingdom. See, this tonight we're talking about the good news of Bible prophecy. We save the best till last. Because all of these kingdoms ultimately fail, don't they? You know, as I travel, I travel a lot all across the United States and overseas. But particularly when I travel in the United States, I find that people are very uneasy about what's happening in the United States. I hear a lot of people comparing what is happening in this country with what happened to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire corroded and became corrupted from within in its core. And that led to its fall. The United States has also become corrupted and corroded from within. And prophecy has a lot to say about what's going to happen as a result, but we'll save that for when we talk about those things. Now, the last kingdom. The stone or rock is a symbol of whom? Of Christ. The mountain from which the stone was cut is what? The heavenly Zion. So what I want you, the picture I want you to see here is that you have the heavenly Mount Zion, by the way, you have the heavenly Mount Zion, and then there is a rock that is the chief cornerstone of Mount Zion. Did you notice in 1 Peter chapter 2? Who is that chief cornerstone of Mount Zion? See, you're dealing with symbols. This is a person. This is not a literal stone. It represents a person. The rock was Christ, the Apostle Paul says. So the cutting out of the stone from Mount Zion that comes from heaven to earth represents what event? The coming of Christ. From where? From the heavenly Mount Zion, where the new Jerusalem is. Now the expression, cut out without hands. Did you look up those verses? Means that the kingdom which God will set up is not of this world, this world or this creation. Human beings have shown that they can't govern this world. This is going to be a kingdom from the other world. It's going to be otherworldly. It's going to be supernatural. It's going to come from heaven. It's going to be established by God, not by human beings. Because human beings always mess it up. You notice that Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. Later on he was accused of, uh, of, of saying this in his trial. And they said, this man said, I'll destroy this temple that was made with hands, and I will raise it up without hands. That means that he would be given a body by the power of his father, not of a human creation, but a miraculous body. Now, in Bible prophecy, mountains represent what? Kings or kingdoms. So, when this stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth, what is God trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that the, that the stone, the rock, Jesus is going to become the ruler of what? Of all of planet Earth. He's going to establish his everlasting kingdom. 
And this kingdom will sweep away all other kingdoms. And will last how long? Whatever. You know when I see how people are suffering, filled with pain, dying, fighting, I just can hardly wait for the Lord to come to establish that kingdom. Because that's where our joy and our happiness is going to start. Our real eternal joy and happiness is going to start. While we live in this world, we're going to have all kinds of trials and tribulations and headaches. But we have this hope that burns within our hearts. Hope in the coming of the Lord. Now, lessons that I want us to remember from Daniel 2. God is able to declare what? The end from the beginning. That's great. Because God knows history before it unfolds, he is able to guide it to the end he desires. And if God can guide something as complex as history, he certainly can guide my life if I place it under his control. Yeah, I think it's a lot more complicated for God to guide history than it is to guide one life in history. The trouble is, we always want to, we're, we're control freaks. We want to do it. We want to have control. But you know, if we leave God to control and direct our lives, everything will be, will function much better. Number two, all events of Daniel 2 have been marvelously fulfilled as predicted, right? This must mean that the last great event, the setting up of Christ's everlasting kingdom, will also occur as announced. What makes you think that, that God predicted, and, and Babylon came, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Rome was divided into ten kingdoms, everything perfectly, but the last event, that's not going to take place. What makes you think that everything was fulfilled exactly the way God said, even though he said it hundreds and even thousands of years before, it happened just like he said, is the last event going to happen also? Why not? It's just the culmination of everything else. And finally, the next great event of human history will be the setting up of Christ's everlasting kingdom. We're living in the toenails, folks. <laughs> and by the way, we're going to find as we, in our next study that the feet of the image have two stages. Now listen to what I'm going to say. I hear you closing your folders because you're all anxious to, to have the quiz. <laughs> but but uh, listen to what I'm going to say because this is of critical importance we're going to find that the feet of the image have two stages one stage of the feet was the middle ages the period of over a thousand years when there was this mixture of church and state but the bible says that at a certain point this union of church and state was separated we're going to talk about that lord willing tomorrow night and uh, church and state from that point on for over 200 years now in the Christian world have been separated by the democratic governments of the world. But prophecy says that once again church and state will blend together and you will have a second stage of dominion of this same power that dominated during the Middle Ages because this deadly wound is going to be healed. So where are we living now? We are living after the first stage of the feet and we're about to enter the last stage. In other words, we're at the very end of human history. 
I hope that we're all preparing to be there. Are you preparing to be there? How about it? Want to raise your hand? If you want God to make a reservation for you, praise the Lord. Okay, let's do our quiz. I promised. Number one, fill in the blank. Use your quiz envelope. Remember, the quiz envelope is for two purposes. The quiz and an offering. In that order. <laughs> Number one, the clay represents blank. Don't say it out loud. I know you know it. The clay of the feet represents what? Number two, the iron kingdom was blank into ten kingdoms. The iron kingdom was blanked into ten kingdoms. Well, if you don't get that one, there's little hope for you. <laughs> Number three, true or false? Well, you got a 50-50 on this one. True or false? Nebuchadnezzar tried to change God's prophetic calendar of events. Number four. In heaven we won't, true or false, in heaven we won't need to eat of the tree of life because we will be inherently immortal. That means immortal in ourselves. So we won't have to eat of the tree of life. True or false? And number five. When all fails, check your sign of the zodiac. True or false? <laughs> See, now, if, if you miss that one, I'm going to have special prayer for you. <laughs> yes. Okay, repeat number three. True or false? Nebuchadnezzar tried to change God's prophetic calendar of events. Okay, let's, uh, let's go through these quickly. I want to hear the answers in unison. The clay represents? Wow, awesome. Yes, thank you, in Europe. The Iron Kingdom was divided. divided into ten kingdoms. Very good. True or false, Nebuchadnezzar tried to change God's prophetic calendar of events. True. Yes, he said, none of that scenario that God gives, my scenario, my kingdom will last forever. Number four, in heaven we won't need to eat of the tree of life because we will be inherently immortal. False. False. Will we still need to eat from the tree of life in heaven? Yes. yes. That means that our source of life is never in us. It is always in him. And number five, when all fails, check your sign of the zodiac. Oh. Did anybody put true on that one? <laughs> You're kidding. Who, who's back there? Amanda. <laughs> Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good time we've had tonight studying your word. We thank you because you've given us the wonderful news that this world is not, not going to last forever the way it's going. We're thankful that you have given us the glorious hope of the coming of Jesus to set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, a kingdom where there will only be life and happiness and joy forevermore. I ask, Lord, that you will bless each person here tonight 
If there's anybody who has not committed their lives to you, I ask that you will come and speak to their hearts and that they might make this commitment. Bless us as we return to our home. Send your angels to protect us from harm and danger. And Lord, we ask that you will bring us back together tomorrow to continue studying these marvelous things from your holy word. Thank you for having been with us. Thank you for answering my prayer because I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.